Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. That there are issues with privacy in the digital environment is not a new thing, right? We all recognize that, particularly with uh, the advent of cell phones and video and social media collecting information and people publishing information all the time. In his new book, Privacy in the New Media Age, John L. Mills discusses an aspect of privacy in the digital environment that is extremely important, and that is the conflict between freedom of expression and privacy in this environment. And he is our guest on the show today. This is New Books and Technology. I am your host, Jasmine McNeely. So the book is Privacy in the New Media Age. Now, one of the first things we like to do on uh, New Books and Technology is to always have the author give us some background on themselves. So uh, tell us a little bit about John Mills, your you know background, education, your former lives. Um. <laughs> former lives. Well, uh, I at one time was in, in politics. I was Speaker of the House in Florida, and I've... Um, been an academic. I uh, was dean of the University of Florida College of Law, and I've been uh, a lawyer. I've been involved in litigation with the firm uh, Boyce, Schiller, and Flexner, and have done a broad spectrum of things, including uh, constitutional issues dealing with uh, the First Amendment, reapportionment, and uh, well, some of the issues that got me interested in doing uh, this book, Privacy Related to the Media. Uh, representing uh, individuals like uh, Don Branshaw, the SeaWorld trainer who died uh, a couple of years ago uh, in an accident with a killer whale and trying to uh, keep the personal information and videos about her from being broadcast through the new media and everywhere. Tell us about that. So you, you've not just been an attorney for the, the this the SeaWorld case, but also a couple of other pretty high-profile pro, cases that dealt with the conflict between um, what your book is talking about, and that is the conflict between privacy and uh, the press, right? Right. The, the conflict is uh, really pretty profound. Uh, we... we in the United States care a lot about access to information uh, and in the new world there's a big demand for information. The, the case that first got me involved in this kind of thing was the uh, the murders of uh, students in Florida uh, back in 1990. Uh, the Danny Rawling case, he killed six students, brutally killed six students. Uh, the issue was the photographs of those crime scenes and the autopsies, which were awful. And I represented the families of those uh, of those children who were killed, and 
remember vividly, vividly uh, talking with them about their uh, their personal their their personal tragedy and their personal uh, hurt during that period of time, and we were trying to prevent uh, those pictures from being broadcast everywhere uh, by some of the fringe media, and that's long before uh, the internet would have broadcast that on a, on a on a basis that they would today. And the, the judge did end up doing, I think, the right thing by saying that privacy the, and the harm from that disclosure outweighed the need of everyone to know about that. That that case did give rise to another case, which is probably even better known generally, was the death of Dale Earnhardt mm-hmm. at Daytona, and uh, his family did not want uh, general disclosure of his autopsy photographs, <laughs> and that was a case that was covered well worldwide and certainly in the United States uh, intensely, and at that point, the internet was an issue, and there was new media, and in fact, there were some websites involved in that case that clearly would have posted uh, autopsy photos. And the the judge there did the the right thing as well, and uh, said that there was adequate information uh, about causes of death and uh, and the accident in a written form as opposed to putting that photo on the internet for his uh, wife and uh, child and family to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why the book now, Privacy in the New Media Age? What prompted this? Well, all of that background and uh, then the perhaps a more recent case with Don Branshaw at SeaWorld, but also the the new context, the fact that uh, there are bloggers everywhere, and there's, there seems to be a dangerous tendency for media to write first and think later, mm-hmm. uh, and the disclosure of inaccuracies, uh, even... A couple of years ago, the example of Shirley Sherrod, who was a uh, Department of Agriculture official accused of racist comments mm-hmm. uh, by a website. Uh, the website was totally manufactured in terms of that issue, but it was covered by mainstream media. And that's one of the problems, that mainstream media will cover uh, these types of inaccuracies because of speed, they don't want to be the last last unit to broadcast it, and so that kind of thing. And the Shirley Sherrod story was uh, false; that she was within 24 hours uh, fired from a job, accused of being a racist, and by the end of 24 hours, everybody apologized. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the danger that there are some some of those inaccuracies are not caught and, and, and are not as visible and people don't apologize and uh, the media can uh, just, people can be hurt 
And and part of as part of a running theme or a mantra almost in the book, you state or you you have is privacy and dignity matter. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that um, whole idea that privacy and dignity matter, even particularly within the context of a news uh, media, and not just a news media, but a you know various kinds of media that put out disinformation all the time. Well, privacy and dignity matter, I think. People have a tough time, and I have a tough time defining privacy. Right. And uh, I think a way that we can all think about that for ourselves is if we think about issues, the worst lies that have been told about us, or perhaps uh, in a different light, the most sensitive truths that could be told about us, mm-hmm. uh, that we... We protect, and it's part of our dignity. And part of our dignity is to be able to think and to be able to exist in a society, in a community, uh, making our own decisions about information and our own identity. Now, this, these are impositions of third parties and other people on an individual's definition of themselves. And on, on dignity, and uh, we see that whether it's uh, hate, uh, hate mail, uh, uh, revenge porn, all sorts of disclosures and use of new technology that impose on the individual identity. And I think if you go back to even the basis of a lot of free speech concepts under the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the First Amendment was also about individuals' right not to speak and uh, the freedom of identity and the freedom to think and the freedom to express yourself as you wish to express yourself. And so in many ways, this sort of intrusive society is actually contradictory to the First Amendment free individual principles. So I think it's, yes, it's, it's uh, you're right that the, the privacy dignity issue are completely connected and very hard in this, uh, this current, current context. So it, it seems like the, the lack of definitions or the very vague multiple definitions of privacy affect the conflict with free expression. Um, and also, not just that, but the cultural differences. So we, you, in the book, you talk about the U.S., but you talk about the EU and how you know the countries of the EU have developed a very different idea about what privacy is and, and the importance of privacy and also the importance of freedom of expression in comparison to uh, the United States. The the EU and people in the EU uh, have perhaps experienced more intrusive governments in the past than a lot of people in the United States. And, uh, uh, Nazi Germany is uh, uh, an obvious example where um, neighbors were informing on neighbors and family members on family members, and um, there was a, a oppressive 
move and the desire to know everything about everyone by government. Uh, and therefore, dignity and individuality uh, seem to permeate uh, some of the policy making in the EU. And they will weigh uh, dignity and privacy on a, basically an equal scale with publicity and uh, newsworthy disclosure. So they will say, well, if that disclosure about an individual, the fact that uh, a particular well-known individual was visiting a drug clinic, uh, they may determine that that wasn't newsworthy. Where in the United States, we, we do bend over backwards to say uh, everything is is publicly uh, available and, uh, and and newsworthy. So it's uh, the question and difficult question is can you can you reach a balance? And it, it appears in many ways uh, the EU has toiled with it more. Where as it seems in the United States, we've we've said we presume that. Most everything is public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a fundamental um, conflict also within this conflict of what is news. So there's information, there's a whole lot of data, a whole lot of information that's published or available, but not all of that is actually news, right? Well, and that's a great uh, question. Uh, because we do believe in confidentiality for certain things like uh, medical records, educational records, financial records. Uh, so we, we do think that not all information is newsworthy, uh, but we really have a problem uh, once a news organization obtains information uh, to do what we would call prior restraint, and that is, what's a news, uh, for what purpose can we keep a newspaper from publishing something they know? And so even names of rape victims, uh, which was a United States Supreme Court case, uh, since the news media had obtained that lawfully, even if it was by accident, right. they were allowed to publish it. Uh, with impunity, even though uh, culturally and actually as a matter of law, we frequently said, we don't want that to happen. We think that's intrusive, we think it's unnecessary, we think it's not newsworthy. Uh, so we still struggle on the edges of this because there are lots of uh, cases where mainstream media don't publish the name of an individual or a victim or, or, or someone involved in a crime. And the bloggers do. And uh, when it comes down to an actual test of were they legally authorized to do that, courts will usually say they were. And uh, the mainstream media will say, uh, well, we believe they were, but we exercise discretion, and therefore you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> But that's uh, the world is new in a sense that the mainstream media doesn't control everything that's newsworthy at all. Right. So, is there 
is the larger or one of the larger issues the fact that there is kind of no definition of who is news media anymore? That's uh, a significant issue because uh, historically, as we talked about in the book, that uh, press and news media were much narrower, more defined. Uh, not everybody had a printing press. Didn't have a printing press before the printing press was invented. Right. <laughs> and uh, so, therefore, uh, there was word of mouth, and then there were presses, and we evolved into broadcast media who are regulated, and then the internet, of course, which is unregulated in most senses, and it, it changed. Uh, so, media ethics and ethics that are taught to people in journalism school. Uh, are not part of the ethical structure of all bloggers. Right. So, your the book, uh, Privacy in the New Media Age, you talk a lot about perhaps the role of law uh, in this conflict between privacy and news, uh, news media. Uh, in your opinion, what should be the role of law in this conflict? Law actually needs to step up uh, in in many ways. Uh, law is so far behind technology, which it usually is anyway, that it doesn't afford uh, injured people a, a chance to be helped. And if an intrusion occurs, you should have a way to uh, remedy that. And uh, the court's need to return to a concept where intrusion upon privacy, whether that's a picture taken over a fence or a, uh, a wiretap or an unauthorized recording, that that's, that's an intrusion, that's a tort, that's something that uh, the individual whose privacy has been violated should have a right to recover, to recover damages. And, uh, the disclosure of private facts. It, it is possible for the law to do that. And uh, as I mentioned here in, in uh, the new media age, the uh, in Europe uh, and in other jurisdictions, some places that's worked. Now, I totally understand that uh, newsworthiness is still a predominant concept, mm -hmm. but there are limits. And for something that is completely personal, not newsworthy, uh, individuals should have an ability to use the law to remedy that. Does does law? I mean, law is really rather normative. Um, does law really remedy uh, things in this new media age? What I mean by that is so. A newspaper, a regular print newspaper, would have printed something that uh, invaded someone's privacy uh, in some way, and that was just one printing. And perhaps you know it was archived somewhere, but most people didn't dig through the archives to look for that specific newspaper. Whereas the internet and social media, it, something is printed and uh, not printed but published, and it's there almost into perpetuity. Now, if we go through the legal process, um, we can get 
I guess, monetary remedies, but the information is still very much out there. So which is yeah, go ahead. Which is a great point. Uh, there's in Europe, Europe they've even articulated this concept of the right to be forgotten. Right. And uh, we've, we've talked about it here some, and as you point out. In the technology age, that's really a myth <laughs> that uh, that you can't expunge the world. And if something has been broadcast, it's, it's on record somewhere. Someone has probably republished it. So what you can get is, yes, you can get monetary damages, you can get retractions, and you can get... Uh, some things taken down from uh, from being readily accessible. So there are remedies for people taking things off of major search engines. But uh, so while it may be there, it's not something that's going to be found unless someone digs into an archive or uh, looks looks uh, very hard for something. And that's uh, used to be. Uh, De facto, uh, you couldn't find things because uh, they were so obscure. So you had uh, obscurity, no file cabinets, doesn't exist. And as you said, now it's, it's searchable, it's findable, there are databases, and there are businesses that are in the business of finding and searching those databases. Right. Uh, one of the uh, ideas that you forth in the book is the uh, media privacy matrix. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could, you know, explain that to the to your audience. Well, it's a way of determining what, what kind of legal options you may have uh, based on circumstances uh, and in any particular circumstance. So there are a series of Basically, logical questions you would ask: uh, Where did the intrusion occur? I mean, was it in? Uh, did someone wiretap me uh, in my home? Uh, and that means you were in a location which is inherently private, and the law protects. Did someone take a picture of me uh, at the bus stop? That's inherently public and not so protectable. Uh, it, uh, well, there's a, a larger picture of where it occurred. Did it occur in the United States? Or did it occur in Europe? And, of course, that seems like an easy question, but it's not as easy uh, when you when you inject the, the Internet. And if someone, if someone has... Uh, made statements about you uh, from some place in Europe, but has published it in uh, a place that's normally read in your state or nationally. Then you're, you're crossing borders, and you have to have to answer that question. Uh, then. Um, there's a series of other questions that uh, go through in this matrix, and that is, uh, who owns the information? Is it actually privately owned? Therefore, a person, if, I, if you own uh, photographs 
you don't have to give them to somebody unless there, there's a legal requirement. Uh, but if the media owns those same photographs, they can do with them what they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, did the, how was the information obtained? Was it obtained legally or illegally? That is, if you wiretap somebody, that's illegal. That's an intrusion. Uh, the character of the information. Generally, if you're, generally if you're disclosing something that's true, it's uh, going to be protected. Uh, and if it's false or defamatory, that's a different issue. And uh, it's an opinion. If someone has an opinion, if somebody is a a bad person or a crook, <laughs> if they express, there may be a difference if they express it as an opinion or if they assert it as a fact. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's, it's complicated. And uh, even down to the fact that certain information in certain media is considered not intrusive. And the example okay, was the Earnhardt case where the written description of the autopsy was made public. Mm-hmm. But the actual auto, uh, autopsy photographs were not because one medium is clearly more intrusive than the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we've been looking at, I guess, this conflict from the perspective of the individual, I think. Um, what about from the perspective of the media or the media organization, the news organization? One of the things you talk about is that risk is now an inherent element of communications or news now. Um, I guess the risk that you'll you know, invade someone's privacy and then get sued, right? Yes, and... Uh so it's it, it, it's interesting, of course, that media, mainstream media, have always had the uh, the attorney, the First Amendment attorney, that reviews things and counsels them that if they're on the edge of doing something which could generate litigation if it's defamatory and so forth. Uh, and one of the phenomena of the new media is that the individual in the basement with a with a computer or and a website doesn't have that kind of filter, right? And so what we're getting is uh, the New York Times may well not write something, uh, but an individual as a blogger may write it and it may get as much coverage. <laughs> and that's the the new phenomena where. Uh, access to the internet and the web uh, gives people a broad audience uh, without the same traditional vetting or restraints. So, you know, one of the things we like to do on New Books and Technology is for the authors to give kind of an elevator pitch. And that is, if someone were just to tune in randomly right now to the show, and they came to this point uh, in in the podcast, and they really need to know why they should, you know, read your book, go out to, uh, not go out to Amazon, but click on Amazon <laughs> and, and purchase it, or go to the library and, and uh, check it out, what would you tell them? Uh, elevator pitch. 
everybody exists in the new media world, and you need to understand uh, how the blogger, how the media can disclose things about your personal life, what rights do you have, and what are the limits. It's, it's, uh, it's not going to change. Uh, it's important to understand how that media works and the laws that, that protect individuals in, in, in this new storm of where everybody lives in a glass house. How do you protect that glass house? Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. So uh, what's next for you? Well, uh, I'm... Just finished uh, another book that uh, a chapter in a book dealing with the National Security Administration and uh, Snowden and some of those intrusions. And uh, then I'm going to do some work on uh, the uh, all of the the wiretap issue and uh, the actual uh, data breaches that are occurring. Uh, to corporations and individuals, and how do we, what are the legal limits to those? And so, dealing with uh, the continual experience of intrusion from uh, media, government, individuals, hackers. <laughs> and also, you um, are the director of the Center for Government Responsibility at the University of uh, Florida, right? Yes, and uh, this is a place where we hope to foster careers in public service, uh, explain why it's important to uh, be engaged in, in, in government and in, in, in public policy issues like this one, like the environment, like uh, the development of good public policy. Mm-hmm. And have, have you found privacy has gotten an even larger uh you know, to be an even larger issue in the development of public privacy policy? Well, it has, and that's uh, the, the public, uh, public policy and the law is trying to catch up with technology. And even the, the, the newest cases about uh, uh, is, it a, is it a search and seizure intrusion uh, for... Uh, uh, an officer to seize a cell phone without a warrant. Mm-hmm. And that made it to the United States Supreme Court. And it's interesting to see that in that case, uh, there's a recognition that seizing somebody's cell phone and looking through it is as intrusive or perhaps even more intrusive than going through somebody's house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, it's uh, this interaction of technology and law is uh, it's not going to get any easier. Mm-hmm. Well, the book is Privacy in the New Media Age, and the author is John L. Mills. And uh, we thank you for being on uh, New Books and Technology today. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Okay, no problem. This has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week. 